Well, hello and happy Sunday. We're going to be back in the book of Jonah this afternoon. This is going to be our second study in this book. We're going to go ahead and finish it in just our second study. If you're using the Bibles around you, it's going to be on page 775, those little blue Bibles. So 775, and we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4. So Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah Chapter four. Um, the year was it was 2015. There was a lot going on in the world and pop culture around us. The U.S. had restored relations with Cuba after five decades. The much anticipated and heated, I might add, Republican and Democratic debates were taking place. In other news, the the musical Hamilton officially premiered. And uh, that second Avengers movie came out, the one with Ultron in it. And yet, what was one of the top sensations that was taking place? Some of you will know what I'm talking about. Others of you will have no idea. But it led to some of the most heated arguments amongst us. People's absolute inability, quite literally, to see eye to eye was on full display all over social media, and that is, yes, none else but the viral phenomena of the dress. Was the dress gold and white, or was it black and blue? For anyone who's not familiar with what I'm talking about, there was a phenomenon about a photo of a dress on the internet. Nobody could come to an agreement on the true color of the dress. You wonder why we're at where we are today in 2022. Uh, but anyways, here's the thing. It, was, it all depended on how you looked at it. And to this day, it even has its own Wikipedia page called, you've got it, The Dress. And I'll spare you the details, but the conclusion I made was simply this. It was, generally speaking, the most logical explanation in anything is usually that which is simplest. It's a well-known principle in philosophy and in apologetics, which basically states, more scientifically, that probabilities or outcomes shouldn't generally be multiplied beyond necessity. And what I mean by this in the case of the dress was the background, if you look at it, is very bright. It's very highly exposed. And therefore, the most likely explanation is that the dress's colors would also be bright, A bright shade of black and blue rather than a perfect shadow cast around to make it gold and white. If you're still not tracking, don't worry about it. Go ahead and Google the dress. Not now uh, or after service. But here's a more classic way of explaining this principle. If it walks like a duck and acts like a duck and quacks like a duck, then you're probably dealing with a duck. We probably don't need to get bent out of shape about explaining otherwise. But more than just a philosophical principle or an old adage, here's Jesus' way of putting it in the New Testament. He says in the Gospel of Matthew, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. 
In other, in other words, the simplest way to recognize who someone really is, is by how they live their life. I'll say that again. The simplest way we can recognize who someone really is, is by how they live their life. The most logical, the most consistent, the most intellectually honest explanation for who a person is, is the fruit in his or her life. Well, today, friends, we're going to do just that as we examine the fruit of Jonah's life, consider what it means for us today, because I think one of the main applications for this text, just give it up front, is what matters most to you? What really matters? Is it God's plan or yours? His way or your way? Because the fruit in your life will surely tell you. Let's take a look now then at how Jonah behaves as like an example or a case study here in chapters three and four. I'm gonna go ahead and read it. Again, it's page 775 of the Bibles provided, Jonah chapter three and chapter four. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, said by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let men and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plan? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So I've got three points to you, for you today from Jonah chapters three and four. Three points. Number one, God's word will be proclaimed. It's chapter three, verse one through verse three. God's word will be proclaimed. Number two, God's people will repent. It's chapter three, verse four through verse nine. And number three, God's purposes will prevail. That's chapter three, verse 10 through the end of the book. So the last verse of chapter three through the last verse of, uh, of chapter four, the very end of the book. So I'll say them again. Number one, God's word will be proclaimed. Number two, God's people will repent. And number three, God's purposes will prevail. And again, my prayer for us today from this text is that as we consider our supremely sovereign, most merciful God, that we would all be encouraged to forego our plans and our comforts and our ways for God's plan and God's purposes and God's way. So under point number one, God's word will be proclaimed, a very quick point at that. As a reminder from last time, Jonah was a prophet from northern Israel in a city not too far away from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, only Jonah came about seven, 800 years before Jesus. Other than that, we really don't have too much uh, from the scriptures about Jonah. You'll remember from last time, we took great care to make it clear that the main point of Jonah is ultimately is that it's a book not about Jonah, but it's a book about God. And that is going to become increasingly clear as we make our way through these final chapters. So look with me right there at chapter three, verse one and two. There it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now keep in mind, this is essentially the same exact command God initially gave Jonah back in chapter one. And if you remember, what did Jonah do then? He ran, he got thrown overboard, he gets swallowed to the brink of death, only to finally be delivered to the shore by God's mercy. And then enter chapter three right here. And friends, let me just tell you, this is, something, this is what second chances look like. Not that Jonah is entitled to a second chance, nor are any of us. One commentator writes that we should not assume that God will go to such great lengths to correct our rebellion against him. But naturally, our question this time should be, well, has Jonah learned his lesson? Does Jonah respond differently this time? And of course, he does. What does verse 3 go on to say? It says, Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. You see, this wasn't about Jonah. This was about God and his purposes. It doesn't matter what Jonah tried to do or what he was set on doing or not doing. God was going to have his way. 
And right now, think with me for a second. Do you ever think that God is dependent on us in any shape, form, or fashion? Have you ever thought to yourself, God needs me to accomplish his plan? I don't think any of us have been that foolish enough. Maybe God needs me for this or that to happen. I have these unique gifts. I have this particular influence. I have this or that kind of relational capital. For some of us, this often comes into play when it comes to evangelism. We despair if someone would ever not believe right away or maybe not believe at all. So we withhold the gospel from them. Others of us, that comes in the play of when we're refusing to call other people out on their sin in love, right? Because we're scared they'll write us off. We'll think to ourselves, he needs me in his life or she needs me in his life. I can't take the risk of them writing me off. So we think that uh, uh, we go on to basically just go our own way in that. Others of us, it's a good word for the type of savior complex. I know many of us have. I know some of us might not even be aware we struggle with it. You're the only one this person or that person will listen to. You're the only one who can take care of this person. You're the only one who knows how to deal with that problem. Well, the book of Jonah goes on to show us how utterly foolish such thinking is, even for a prophet like Jonah to ever think that. Jonah said, no, Jonah went his own way. Jonah had his own plans. And you think that's gonna stop God's word from being proclaimed? Whether he used Jonah, whether he used someone else in his place. I mean, we know Christ's great commission in the New Testament at the end of Matthew. What does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So he's telling us to go. He's telling us to baptize them, teaching all that he's commanded them. So does that mean it's dependent on us for his plan to succeed? What else does God's word tell us? It says in several places, Old Testament and New Testament, it says all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So yes, God commands us to proclaim his word, and yes, in his grace, he chooses to use us to do his work, but make make no mistake about it, God's word will be proclaimed one way or the other. It may be through joyful obedience and participation. It may be through the cutting down of a useless tree so that a fruitful one might grow up in its place. And it may be through being thrown overboard and swallowed by a great fish. In any case, God's word needs to go to dark places, and brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, it will. Because you see, God is driving this train, not you or I, and we can either joyfully jump on board in obedience, or he may just have other plans. Do keep in mind, this wasn't necessarily an easy task being asked of Jonah. After all, it wasn't common whatsoever for a prophet of Israel to be uh, called to go into the belly of the beast in a faraway pagan metropolis to proclaim God's incoming judgment. It says there at the end of verse three that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city that took three days to travel through. And the word great here, it doesn't necessarily just mean very large. It also means very important. 
It was like essentially the capital city of the Gentiles, even though it wasn't the capital city of Assyria formally. Think of like Chicago and Illinois or, or New York City, the city of cities. So we may be tempted at this point to think that, well, of course, Jonah is going to take off running. This is Nineveh. Come on, let's have a little grace for Jonah here. But friends, God doesn't call us to a mere comfortable obedience. He calls us to a radical obedience for the sake of his great name among the nations. That's in our going. That's in our sending. And that's in our giving, as we just did right before. God's word will be proclaimed. And this leads us to our second point today, which is God's people will repent. So Jonah makes his way into the great city, and he, Jonah just begins going for it. Look at verse 4. He says, 40 days, and essentially your whole city is coming down. And naturally, at this point, we would probably expect verse 5 to read something like, and the, the people of Nineveh mowed Jonah down, or Jonah was no more. Uh, but instead, what do we see? Verse 5 amazingly says that the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. Notice it doesn't say they believed Jonah. No, they believed God. They took God at his word. Jonah says, God has given you 40 days and then you're done. And they believed God. Friends, if you were given 40 days to live, what would that look like? Would you believe God? Would you turn your life around? Would you cut out that sin or that worldliness that you've been coddling or hiding? Could you do it then? I think, Christian, we often feel like our sin controls us. It's just too good to pass up. It's just who we are. It's inevitable that we act in such a way. But we've got to remember that in Christ, sin has lost its power over you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it's lost its grip on you. Because here's my bet. I think that if we were told audibly, without a shadow of a doubt, you have 40 days to live. I think that sin, that struggle, the way you treat that person, I think you could refrain from it. You could resist it. And I think the reason you don't I think the reason I don't, I think the reason we often don't is because too often the issue is we just don't believe God. We're convinced we have far more than 40 days to live, maybe even 40 years to live, maybe even more. We'll just kick that can down the road and we'll return to it at a later date and we'll deal with it then. But what if you don't have that time? Because you see, you're not going to get a prophet of God to walk up to you and tell you how much time the clock of your life has left on it. What if you don't get 40 years? What if you don't get 40 days? Here Jonah gets a second chance. He makes good use of it. But remember, Israel got how many chances? You and I have had how many chances? And yet here's Nineveh. Look at verse five there. It says, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then in verse six and beyond, if you look there, it says the king does the same thing. He sits in ashes and he issues a public decree to all royalty, to all laymen, even to the animals of Nineveh that everyone in everything must turn from evil and fast. 
which we then see kind of a summary motivation there in verse 9, where it says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the, the people of Nineveh hear God's word. They hear his warning and they do something about it. They didn't just say it's true. They didn't just intellectually assent to it. They believed it was true and they did something about it. So question for all of us here today, let me put it this way. You know what a Venn diagram is? I use this example a lot, I hope, uh, I hope you do. Uh, it's when you have two circles that kind of overlap to some degree. You have one circle showing what's different from the other circle and the overlapping area is like what's in common. If you think like Virginia, Maryland, like DC is a blend of the mix in the middle. Now, if you had one circle that represented what you say you believe, and another circle that represented the fruit in your life. How much overlap would there be? Would it be pretty close? Obviously, with our imperfections and blind spots here and there, not exactly. Would they be close or are you someone where they'd be very far apart? Or perhaps you're someone whose outward public actions, perhaps Sunday actions, actually look pretty good. You do a lot. You serve a lot. You say a lot of the right things. But where's your heart at? Who are you in secret? It says one pastor puts it, we are who we are in secret. In any case, if you're here today and we call ourselves a Christian and this is the case for you, your life is very far apart from what you say you believe or you're living a secret, duplicitous life, I fear for you. You need to repent. And now is the time to lean into the mercies of God. But in terms of Nineveh, they heard, they believed, and they did something about it. Now, this has all the marks of true repentance. Do we know for sure? Not necessarily. We don't. Uh, some commentators believe that though their repentance appears genuine, it may be actually only temporary because if you know, Nineveh actually ends up getting destroyed about 150 years later. Perhaps maybe this generation truly repented and then it only took like four or five generations for, them to, for Nineveh to return to its way of old. That's a very strong possibility. We don't know for sure. The language of animals fasting in the decree might indicate that this was just a part of Nineveh's pagan culture and religious tradition. Uh, but again, going back to our principle at the start, I think the simplest, most straightforward reading of this text is that at least for this generation, this repentance was genuine. But let's say for a moment, even if it wasn't, or in any case, remember this story is about God and this is a story about his mercy, not about Jonah, not about the people of Nineveh and their motivations. God's word has transcended just about every kind of barrier you could imagine in making it to Ninevites and in them actually hearing and them actually repenting. There is, this is just making it so absolutely clear that there is no barrier that God cannot overcome. Think if all of a sudden the whole city of Las Vegas was converted, right? Because, you know, see, the thing is, he's already come. 
He's already come and overcome the greatest barriers we could ever imagine. Time and time again, most notably in the defeating of sin of the whole world. By defeating death once and for all. We're at a point where it's finished, it's, it's over. There doesn't need to be a barrier between you and God anymore. Because here's the, God, he created you and I. He created everyone in, existed, in existence and he created us to love us. He created us to enjoy everlasting fellowship with him. But all of humanity, you and I, every person who has ever existed has broken fellowship with God. Sought to define ourselves, to live our lives apart from him. That's called sin. That's called idolatry. That's called rebellion. And as a result, God gives us exactly what we ask for, brothers and sisters. He's given us exactly what we've asked for in the form of not just physical death, which separates us from the things of God and his goodness in creation, but also spiritual death, which separates us from God himself forever. And because we have all chosen ourselves, we've all chosen our own ways rather than God's, he will hold us accountable just as he did, just he was about to with Nineveh. But God in his great mercy, friends, sought to restore our fellowship with him That's why he himself, God, the son, Jesus incarnated. That's why he came and he entered into his creation to live a life of perfections. That's why Jesus had to die. He had to die to deal with the judgment that was coming for us, to deal with the wrath of God, to absorb it all in our place. And then he rose again on the third day to show that once for all he has overcome the greatest barrier we could ever imagine that all who would repent of their sins and believe in him might enjoy his glorious grace forever. God's mercy, friends, is for you today. Do you believe this? Will you believe this? Because God's people will repent. And God's people will enjoy his mercy when they do. They, you, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, having your spirits literally resurrected, can't help but find his mercies absolutely irresistible. So if you're here today and you need to repent, please do so now. Use this time to do so now. Turn to God. Believe in him. Trust in him with your life. If you're his, I trust you will, because God's people will repent. Which leads us to our third and final point from this text. God's purposes will prevail. God's purposes will prevail. As we've established at the end of the day, this text, this book, it's not ultimately about Jonah. It's not about Nineveh. It's all about God and his sovereign purposes of having mercy upon those in whom he will have mercy across this entire world. He's had his word preached. He's had his people repent. And finally, his purposes will now prevail. Look with me at the last verse of chapter 3. There it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. 
And so God's purposes, we find in the book of Jonah, is to show mercy to the nations. It's to show mercy to all who would repent and believe in him. And this is exactly what we see here, church. He sees their repentance and he relents. And Jonah, being a man of God, a prophet of the great and merciful, loving Yahweh, is thrilled at this point, right? Well, not exactly and really not at all. As we read earlier and as you see right there in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And Jonah proceeds to throw a fit from there. Continuing on in verse 2 and 3, it says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. And here, Jonah begins to show his true colors. If you remember his prayer from chapter two as he sank into the depths of the ocean, you'll remember we took great care to once again emphasize that Jonah's deliverance was about God's mercy and not so much about Jonah's deservedness or about Jonah's repentance because if you read that prayer closely, it doesn't really look like Jonah repents anyways. Which you start to see a little bit more clearly here at this point uh, in chapter four. It's like when you get into an argument or a fight and for the sake of uh, pragmatics and just moving on, you show grief and you say sorry begrudgingly or only for another fight to break out, another argument to break out, and then you say something even worse and it shows how you really feel. That's what's going on here. What was it Paul said to the Corinthians? Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces death. And get this, this isn't, this isn't just a little disagreement this isn't just a, a, a fit on Jonah's part towards, towards God. No, look closely there. He's going at the very nature of who God is. That's what Jonah's upset with. That's what he can't get over. He can't get over God's gospel sort of grace. Because what he's doing is he's using very Exodus 34 language here. That was our call to worship for today that Jake read. And what I mean by that is Exodus 34 was the very first time the Lord revealed his covenantal name. And so to Moses, uh, he declared himself merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so Jonah's problem is not just with God's decision. It's with God. Jonah sees God's mercy and God's grace and patience and love as weaknesses in God, as liabilities to his purposes. Kind of like in all those movies where like the villain rebels because he thinks his way is better and that kindness and mercy are actually just serious flaws. I mean, not to say Jonah is a villain necessarily, but you be the judge. I mean, we, we often think the book of Jonah is like some sort of famous origin story for some sort of hero where uh, uh, he, he just does this amazing stuff when actually it, just, it kind of takes this awkward turn, sort of falls flat, and Jonah starts to look a little bit more, I'm going back to the last time if you remember, like an Anakin Skywalker or a Saruman, Lord of the Rings people, or some sort of other villain, looks more like that than he does a hero. 
And remember, Jonah knows God's mercy first and foremost from his own experience when God rescued him at the point of death. But hold your horses, put the brakes on, let's continue on. Let's give Jonah more of a chance. In verse four, God replies by asking him, do you do well to be angry? Which is another way of saying, have you any right to be angry, Jonah? And friends, pay close attention here. So I want everyone looking at your Bibles. Notice here, Jonah doesn't offer a reply. He doesn't give an answer here. He kind of takes his ball and goes home. He doesn't want to be part of such a disgusting scandal as God's ex- God extending mercy to sinners. Instead, as verse 5 says, he goes out of the holy city. He makes himself a booth with basically some popcorn to hopefully see the destruction of Nineveh. That's like going and renting out a top floor of one of the buildings in Arlington so that you can just look over at Washington, D.C. and watch it get bombed repeatedly. That's what Jonah's doing here. And now this is where something very interesting happens. So look at here. God isn't too busy with the affairs of Nineveh to be distracted away from teaching Jonah yet another lesson, just as he's not too busy with the bigger problems or trials of the world than the things you and I are currently going with to teach us. Verse six says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. That's like in his his Arlington skyscraper, God shows up with room service. But then the next day comes, we learn in verse seven, and then God appoints a worm that attacks the plan and it dies. And then look, pay close attention right there at verse eight, because we've seen this before. It says, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And now right here, what does he say? He says, he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Which matches exactly how he replied in verse three after God relented from overthrowing Nineveh. So if you're keeping score at this point, Jonah would rather die than see God show mercy to those who Jonah deems unworthy. And he would rather die than live without his comforts. So Jonah's O and two. Not to mention he also ran away from God, got thrown overboard, got eaten by a giant fish, so you could say O and five. But look how God replies to Jonah in verse nine because you've seen this before too. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plan? Or in other words, do you still really believe that I owe you something, Jonah? So God asked Jonah the same question he asked him back in verse four. You know, the time when Jonah didn't offer a response. Well, this time Jonah replies. This time there's an answer to God. And what does he say in verse nine? He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Again, we've now seen Jonah say with his own mouth that he would rather die than deal with two things. The first is inner despair at God's mercy towards others, and the second is outer despair from being deprived of physical comfort. It says one commentary says, God is pointing out the absurdity of Jonah's spiritual unconcern for human beings with his extreme concern for his own physical well-being. 
But here's the thing, what if these aren't two different lessons from God after all? What if rather than two lessons for Jonah, they're actually the same lesson? What if rather than two lessons for us, there's actually one lesson? Because this thing going on with the plant actually runs right alongside the narrative of the rest of the book, like two rails on a track. It's kind of a microcosm for the greater thing going on to the point where uh, we kind of see a lot of similarities. Uh, The narrative of the book opens with Jonah doing his own thing with the plant, And then Jonah witnesses God's grace towards those he deems undeserving. And then likewise, when this plant dies and inconveniences him who is deserving, it's the same thing going on here. It's his way and his will and his wants that matter. It's his way and his will and his wants over God's way and God's will and God's wants. He would rather die. He would rather die than watch other people get what they deserve. Don't, uh, he would rather die than watch other people get what they don't deserve and would rather die than watch himself not get what he believes he deserves. Because I think the lesson going on with this plant is essentially the same lesson we get in the whole book, which is Jonah is happy only insofar as he gets his way. Only when his circumstances are as he would have them. When God does what he wants God to do, well, he's happy with God. But when God does something Jonah doesn't want God to do or doesn't understand why God would ever do such a thing, he's angry with God. He thinks he knows better and he wants to die. I think this is a word to us, brothers and sisters, one that would convict many here. And yet, I do just want to say on this how genuinely proud and, and, and thankful I am to have witnessed over the past three years of this church. Uh, so many of you have gone through so many trials and so many hardships, a lot that a lot of people don't even know about. So many situ- situations where to put it raw, it's like, what could God seriously be doing here? Why is God doing this? Is he trying to teach me something? And I've watched you fight for joy. And I've watched you fight for obedience. Fight for faith and persevering onward as you lean into the mercies of God. And I just want to thank you and I just want to commend you for that. Keep fighting to make this life more and more about Christ increasing in your life and us and us more and more decreasing. I pray and trust that we will. And we've said a lot about this story of Jonah being about God, not about Jonah. I think if you were to ask Jonah, don't know for sure, I think Jonah might say that it's all about Jonah. And the book concludes with God having outdone Jonah in mercy. Verse 10, God says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That 120,000 there who do not know their right from their left, that's talking about infants. 
It's talking about young children under the age of four-ish. So at the very least, it's about one-fifth, one-sixth of the population, bringing the total population of Nineveh up to right around Washington, D.C. today. In other words, do you really care more about your own plans, your own perceptions of righteousness, your own temporal comforts than you do about six or 700,000 people who are made in my image? And brothers and sisters, I can't help but ask the same kind of challenging questions of us here today. Do we find our hearts more closely aligned to the self-righteous heart of Jonah or the compassionate heart of God? Are we more concerned over our own physical comforts, our own conveniences, our own sense of what's right than we are for God and his purposes? Are we sitting under our own vines while the nations perish, forsaking sharing the good news of salvation with those we know, with those we come in contact with? What about everyone else we pass on a uh, a daily basis at work or at the store or uh, on the road, determining who's worthy of grace, who's worthy of mercy, who's worthy of the gospel, and who is not? Are we in this for God? Or are we in this for us? I can't help but think of the popular quote. I've shared it before, what John Piper, pastor and theologian, wrote when he said, the critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted. No human conflict, no natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And that can be a very intimidating or hard question for us. I think the healthy key to answering that question is first and foremost, even if it may not currently be the case, or maybe not something you can say confidently yes to, a good litmus test there is do you want it to be? Do you care for it to be? That's step one. Do you want it to be? If no, I said before, I fear for you. If yes, the question there becomes what steps are we taking? What habits are we forming right now, this side of heaven, to increasingly make that a reality? I think the simplest place to start is to simply open your heart up to God. Confess to him, ask for his help, and reorient your life around that day, the day of the Lord, rather than this one. A really practical way to start doing this today is to take a look at all the things the Lord has blessed you with, all the things that we enjoy, and start to view them and use them and take pleasure in them to the glory of him rather than the glory of us. And I wonder if we were to ask similarly of Jonah, this side of the new covenant, what he might say, if he could have everything his way, would that suffice? I mean, we have an example of, uh, of Jesus from the New Testament that I think sounds an awful lot like Jonah here. It's what Becca read earlier in Luke 15, particularly about the prodigal son and the brother who was outraged at his father's grace. How could you offer such, uh, such free grace? How could you offer such forgiveness? 
He hated the mercy his father showed his undeserving brother. Sound familiar? But it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. The brother could not restrain the mercy of the father in Luke 15. Jonah could not restrain the mercies of God here in this book. And no one or nothing can restrain the mercies of God that freely flow to all who call upon the name of the Lord. That is why we share the gospel, friends. God's purposes will prevail. That goes for you in your life, Christian. That goes for all of his people across the globe who turn from their sins and believe in him. Just think of Christ on the cross. Talk about unlikely. Talk about something we would never foresee doing to accomplish God's will in our own plans. God's purposes always prevail, even though he often works in ways we wouldn't naturally think or like, and to one degree, God acting in this way is what God, Jesus crucified, right? The Jews and the religious elite wanted and expected Jesus to judge the Roman occupation, to rule with an iron fist, not to be the sacrificial lamb who would empty himself for the sins of the whole world. In any case, church, no person, no Opponent, no sin, no accusation can stand against you or against him. God will have his people for himself. He will save them, he will guard them, and he will deliver them finally into his heavenly kingdom. Nothing can halt the mercies of God because his purposes will prevail. To conclude, you know, oftentimes people will say, we don't really know what became of Jonah. I mean, I'm one of them. I don't think we can definitively know one way or the other. I mean, God very well, in his sovereign plan, we can't put it past him, may have seen fit to really work on Jonah after the events of this book, right? God's mercy can meet Jonah in the same way it met Nineveh, in the same way it meets us. But just from the evidences of this book, we return to our principle from the beginning, which is that the, the simplest explanation is often the most logical answer. If it acts, walks, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And Christ told us that we will recognize them by their fruits. What kind of fruit have we seen from Jonah in this book? He runs from God. He doesn't really repent. He has a problem with God's nature. And he rejects God's mercy upon the undeserving. You be the judge. But for our purposes today, we're not here to simply pile up on Jonah and scoff at him because that makes us no better. It just becomes a never-ending vicious cycle of seeing everyone else's sin as worse than our own. Because friends, we're Jonah, all right? We're Jonah. We all ran from God and we still run from God to one degree or another, We often struggle to repent. We don't always like the way God does things and we frequently see other people's sin as far worse than our own. But here's where I pray that each and every one of us will be different from Jonah. It's as the Puritan Thomas Watson put it. He said, it's not unworthiness that excludes us from the covenant but unwillingness. And as that old hymn goes, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. And so what does your life say about you, Christian? 
What story does the fruit of your life tell? What's the simplest explanation for who you really are? Will you come to him today? Will you hear his word and turn from your sin? Repent of your sin. Turn to God. Turn to making this life not about you. Turn to making this life truly about him and his glorious grace. Because you see, throughout this book, it's become quite evident we need one better than Jonah. We need one better than Jonah, brothers and sisters. And praise be to God, we've received one better than Jonah. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. One who did not run from God, but obeyed the Father in all that he did. Who went before us straight into the belly of the beast, death itself to satisfy God's righteous judgment against sin and to walk with us each and every day until we see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We need you. Have mercy on us and continue to grant us grace. Lord, empty us of ourselves and fill us with Christ. Keep us to the end, we pray, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.